Hello and welcome to People Places Power with me, Nick Cull. And me, Simon Anhold. In this podcast, we look at issues of international reputation, foreign policy, and a few other things along the way. And this week, we're going to be talking about the role of the media in this world of reputation. How do the media cover issues of international reputation? And are they themselves a building block of international reputation? So to get us started with this, Simon, maybe you could talk a little bit about how the media has covered the world of nation brands and branding that you have, like it or not, been part of now for 25 or so years. Well, at the beginning, fairly soon after the term began to be discussed, the media in the West, particularly in the UK, seemed to be taking an interest in the idea. I think um, partly because they scented the possibility of, of a scandal there. There's no question that the term nation plus branding or nation plus brand is intrinsically provocative. And actually, that's what I rather hoped when I coined it, because you've got this grand old word nation and you've got this modern, rather slippery, rather weaselly word brand and you stick to them together and there's a sort of chemical reaction. It feels dangerous. It feels almost offensive. And uh, almost as soon as I started writing or talking about this subject back in the 1990s, I found that the media noticed it and would write vaguely um, suggestive pieces about how this was a shocking new development. The latest example of government held captive by commercial interests, the world being turned into a gigantic supermarket in which countries are just products on a shelf to be marketed. The downside of globalization, you you, you can guess the kinds of stories. Mm -hmm. That wasn't unexpected, but I hoped that over time, as the media got more used to it and as they realized that the general public, for reasons which perhaps we can discuss later, found the topic interesting, I hoped that it would start getting a bit deeper, but it never did. And the story of how the media covers this particular topic is a very sad story because basically it's never got beyond those slightly insinuating, very superficial newspaper stories that appear with depressing regularity. Here's a bunch of consultants. Here's what they say. Aren't they a bunch of crooks? Goodness me, charging governments, taxpayers money to fool these idiotic politicians into wasting money on, um, on, on marketing. And it's never really gone beyond that, which is such a shame because it's a fascinating topic. Do you think that the indices are treated differently? Because, you know, every now and again, you get coverage, well, pretty much once a year, you get coverage of your index, though it tends to cluster around countries that have done well, hmm. or a country that's done badly. Oh, my God, how can they say this about us? Do you think there's a different tone in the coverage of indices? Well, it's interesting um, to look at the different coverage that, 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 that my two different indexes get. The Nation Brands Index, which has got that word brand in the title and is very much about national image, always gets a lot of press. We don't release the whole ranking, but we release the top 10 and we say who's done well and who's done badly. And that seems to have an absolutely eternal fascination um, for, the, for the media. 
who admire it's a it's a very postmodern idea, isn't it? You know what do what does the public think about countries, and can and can we measure that? The Good Country Index, on the other hand, which is not doesn't have anything to do with branding, gets enormously more coverage and on a much 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 wider scale. Both of them do well in media terms for the simple reason that country rankings always do. There's something perennially exciting to the media, perennially exciting about the idea of putting countries in order and and, and giving them a giving them a ranking as if they were running a race. It combines people's extreme sensitivity to the notion of the nation, their own mm-hmm. country, the country they love, the country they hate, the countries they're worried about, gives it a ranking. It's a ready-made media story and, and therefore an absolute gift for any lazy journalist. And is there any other kind of journalist <laughs> these days? I'm not sure. Well, there's also lazy index writers because, sure. um, you know, we've seen the indices that have been based on media coverage. So sometimes this whole thing gets turned around and people have sought to create rankings based on media coverage. And even people, the same people, have offered to move or sold services to move the position of a country in a media-based index. But I'm mentioning no names, as I think that's a sharp practice. And we have also seen media launching their own indices. That's correct, isn't it? Which yes, there are. And certainly things like livability of cities, uh, which are you know tangential to this world of, of, of reputation, those are run by yeah i mean every every year that goes by i say to myself surely surely this is the last year that anybody can release another ranking of countries and still get media attention for it and uh, and every year more are released and every year they get media attention so one th- one thing is for sure whoever can come up with what comes next after country rankings is going to do very well because the the media <laughs> And the reading public are desperate for, for an alternative. Because in, in the end, these indicators just, just eat themselves. They're self-fulfilling prophecies. And when you get into a situation like the, the kind you mentioned, where the media are themselves publishing an index, reporting on how the images of countries are reported in the media, then truly you say to yourself, civilization is now eating itself. And where is Jonathan Swift when we need him so badly? Um, this stuff practically right. But let's take the role of the media in reputation from a different angle. Do you, when you're looking at how reputations are built, do you see media figuring in national reputation? So, do do you think people admire the UK more than they might otherwise because of British media institutions? like the BBC, Guardian, Economist, and so forth? It's a, it's a really interesting question. There's, there's no doubt that if a country produces credible media products, and those credible media products are strongly associated with the country of origin, then, then just like any big brand from a country, it performs an ambassadorial role for that country. No question about it. The UK is a country that's been around for a long time. It has many, many complex interactions with the international community. So it's almost impossible to point to any one particular thing that the UK says or does or makes and say this is important because it's just one of a million, million uh, ways in which the UK 
uh, communicates itself or gets itself known to the rest of the world. But there's no question at all that the BBC is part of that. And it is specifically an instrument in a way that, for example, British Airways or Rolls-Royce really can't be, because those are, if you like, accidental instruments. They are ambassadors despite themselves. But the BBC, despite the fact that very wisely it keeps itself at arm's length from government, government nonetheless, it is an instrument of soft power. And you know more about this topic than I do, but that's the reason why so many countries try to try to copy that and have their own national broadcaster because they they sense that it is an instrument of great power. But I think they very on, often underestimate how long it takes and therefore how much it costs to right. uh, to establish yourself in that field and to build credibility. It's many decades. Well, I, I th- also think within the BBC that there are some interesting di- dynamics and th- you could almost call it a Samsungization as the BBC sometimes distances itself from its country of origin. And mm. I know they've had data where people around the world aren't sure what the B stands for, that they right. see the BBC as Western, but they're, they're, they don't necessarily see it as tied to the uh, British Isles. And the BBC goes to such lengths to have locally recruited voices, to have diverse voices uh, involved, that sometimes the, you know, this is not the, the BBC today, is not the BBC of the 1930s or 1940s with you know, dinner jackets and playing in with Lily Bolero and this is London. You know, it, it, it's, I think, much more locally inflected. But I would still, even with that, I'm sure that it's an important part of how people experience Britain. And for my money, probably the most important element in British public diplomacy Sometimes I think that you know Britain is a life support system for the BBC. Rather, you know, that's maybe the most important thing that it does in in the world is deliver that global service. And I'm sure that it helps the image of the country, even if there are um, uh, limits on that. Which makes it seem even stranger that right now there is such hostility between the British government and the BBC. Yeah. If the BBC is one of the geese that lays the golden egg of a positive reputation for the UK, it should be better looked after than it, it is right mm. right now. Absolutely. And, and perhaps most especially the World Service, um, the BBC's sure. international radio service, which, which broadcasts in a large number of languages. I don't know what the latest count is and, and is a source of, of, um, of genuine value to many, many millions of people around the world. Um, in many cases, the only unbiased source, well, relatively unbiased source of news they can get anywhere about their own country. Um, and, uh, and that's had a huge value since the day it was founded and continues to do so. The prospect of government cutting funding off for this relatively cheap international service, which does so much uh, for, mm-hmm. for the country's status and does so much for other people around the world, let alone the self-interest. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a terrifying proposition. And I think if we've got to the stage where people can no longer see the value of that, then something really worrying is happening. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I, it, it's been interesting to, to, to look at um, the various attempts there have been for other countries to follow suit. Um, we've got Al Jazeera, of course, which mm-hmm. um, 
like the BBC, is not at all um, explicit about its very its specific country of origin, but it's very explicit about its region of origin. And so I suspect that if you were to uh, research this and you were to say to people, where, where does Al Jazeera broadcast from? They'd say the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Um, they wouldn't um, be able to specifically say Qatar. Um, mm-hmm. And in a sense, that's quite interesting, isn't it? Uh, perhaps it shows that um, we live in an age where you have to be a bit more subtle about these things. Um, the, the, I think the majority of those national broadcasters, the only people who really listen to them are expats from that country. Um, you know, you take a channel like, um, uh, like, uh, f- for example, the um, uh, the Japanese uh, broadcaster NHK. Mm-hmm. I suspect that that a very large proportion of the people who watch that are Japanese citizens living abroad, and I think mm-hmm. the same is probably even more true of the uh, Korean one, which, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, is Korean. Yeah, that's right, Korean. Yeah. Uh, who, who apart from, well, I suppose perhaps K-pop fanatics, but it's not, a, it's not really targeted at a younger audience. Um, I think it's mainly Koreans who watch it. So yeah. if, they're, if they're prepared to spend all of that money, and it is an enormous amount of money setting up an international broadcaster uh, just for the entertainment of their own uh, diaspora, well, that's very generous of them. But that's where the BBC began. That was its, its initial priority was to connect the, the, the diaspora uh, and mm. other policies grew out of that. And one of the strange things about international broadcasting is that it, it exists at two levels. You have a, a background exposure to an international broadcaster, and then you have what they call surge broadcasting when there's a crisis and suddenly everybody wants to know what the news is coming out of country X when mm-hmm. a voice from a particular country or a broadcaster with good representation on a country can become an, an essential part of how we how we understand what's what's happening in that place. Yes. So we've, we've got those those two things going on. And I, I think um, at, at some points having an international broadcaster was like having an airline. Mm. It, was, it was one of the badges of being a great power. Yes. Uh, and if you didn't have one, there was uh, there was something missing. But, you know, one of the issues here, too, is how do the media represent public diplomacy? How do they write about government attempts to Im- improve their their image through engagement of foreign publics? And you know, my experience is that that tends to be a, a negative story because it gets tied to I think an aversion of a government, aversion to a government role in media in, in general, and a sort of a fear of censorship. And one of the stories that comes up both in the US and UK, and probably rightly, is uh, negative coverage of attempts to influence state broadcasters. So endangerment of Voice of America attempts to editorial to control the BBC World Service. This, the, that, that has historically been a big alarm bell. More problematic maybe is negative coverage, even of moderate steps to coordinate international narratives. And I, I think it's a, um, a kind of a, a go-to tactic if you don't like, for political reasons, the way in which a government is reorganizing its information, you can always go to uh, sell it as an alarm story uh, to the media. So I'm, I'm very aware of that. Hmm. 
I'm, I, I have the feeling that the term itself, public diplomacy, is hardly ever used in the general media. It's not a term that most people are familiar with. They're probably more familiar with nation brand, nation branding, or at least that's easier for them to understand at, um, at first glance. And so therefore, it, it makes a better story. Off the top of my head, I can't remember ever actually reading a story in a general newspaper or on a general website about public diplomacy. I think most the instinct of, of, of most general journalists would be that's specialist, like diplomacy itself, and it's not of interest to the general reader. Is that is that what you've found? I think in the United States during the Iraq war, during the George W. Bush period, public diplomacy was a, was a term that was very widely known. And How was it? Was absolutely, uh, because it's in my job title, I, I, I notice whether people glaze over or whether people say, ah, yes, I know what you mean. And yeah. George W. Bush period was a period of, ah, yes, I know what you mean, rather than the other. Mm. I, I think that sometimes it's the components that people latch on to. So in, in the UK, the British Council has been a traditional whipping boy of the Daily Express. They can always get steamed up about government money being wasted, taking Shakespeare to Ethiopia or some such outrage. And mm. that that's still a touchstone today, in particular papers, the Express, the Daily Mail, Daily Telegraph. And so that would be a, a kind of um, way in which in the UK, public or cultural diplomacy, cultural relations issues are manipulated. Yeah. Of course, the, the, the other interesting topic where the media meets public diplomacy, nation branding and all the rest of it is perhaps the biggest question of all and the most complex one, which is how does the media actually affect the images of countries? And this is a subject which is endlessly fascinating and really very complex. And I'm, I'm often asked by, by governments, how much does the media matter? And I think the only possible answer is it depends, because undoubtedly you could draw a scale between the countries that are primarily known through the media and the countries where whatever the media says about that country is likely to have very little impact on its image. So at the one end of the spectrum, you have countries which were more or less unknown, or at least people never thought about them until something happened. A war breaks out, for example. And then that country is in the media the whole time. And in a situation like that, the, the example I usually give in this case is Syria, a country which, until things started going badly wrong in Syria, very few people outside Syria's neighborhood ever thought about it or knew anything about it. But then suddenly, when the news started getting very bad and very scary and continued to be so for a very long time, suddenly Syria develops itself a popular image. People have associations with them. They're not very, uh, they're not very profound. They're fairly shallow. It's just ooh, Syria trouble. Mm -hmm. But that is a, a national image which is created almost uniquely by the media. Well, you you and I can go back a little further. You, you, do you remember Cambodia? How mm. from not being a place that people knew anything about, suddenly we knew one thing about it, and that was uh, a very very troubling image for. Cambodia, uh, yes. when they we're talking, when would that be, late 70s? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's very bad news for a country if, it, if its image does end up getting, uh, getting created by the media, A, because it tends to be 
terribly thin, terribly unidimensional, and therefore terribly vulnerable. Because as you say, people only knew one thing about Cambodia. People only know one thing about Syria. And that's a very, very bad thing. Even if it's a good thing that they know about you, it still creates an enormous vulnerability for the country. It's funny, even thinking about Cambodia, when the Cambodian crisis was going on, when the famine was going on, there was a punk rock song by the Dead Kennedys called uh, Holiday in Cambodia. Now people regularly go for holidays in in Cambodia and it it doesn't seem like an absurd, disturbing concept. No, indeed. But it took how long? 30, 30 years to come to move out of that and for Cambodia to return to some kind of normal place. Rwanda is coming back. People are forgetting other associations with Rwanda and its mountains and gorillas seem to be... Well, well, exactly. And I think think that's the significant question. Rather than how long did it take, because it could have have happened quickly, it could have happened slowly. The the question is, uh, what are the other pillars on which knowledge of the country is based? And when it's only one war then it's very negative and it's very unstable. The moment you have two pillars and it's standing on two legs, one of them is tourism, for example, in the case of Cambodia or indeed Rwanda, or ecology or something of that sort, again, in the case of Rwanda, and yes, war and conflict, suddenly the thing is is much more stable, it's much broader, and the country occupies a larger space in the public imaginarium because people know two sets of things about it. And uh, this is why when I first started writing on this subject, I came up with this hexagon picture, because those, if you like, are six different columns on which a country's image can stand. And the closer a country gets to standing on six tall pillars, which have got good and bad in them, but there's something that people know about and think about, the closer you are to having a really, really robust international standing. And that seems to be the important thing. And it doesn't necessarily have to take decades, but it does require a really good tourism offering and a really good tourism sector to promote it, plus a really good investment, series of investment opportunities and a really good investment agency to promote them and so on and so on and so on. And preferably a bunch of good products and services to export as well. But one of the processes we can see in in the representation of countries is the media's quest for a narrative mm-hmm. and and by narrative i'm thinking they need a good guy they need a bad guy and material that goes against the narrative or that complicates the narrative gets passed gets passed over for mm-hmm. sure and uh, you know anybody who's worked in a newsroom can attest to that and you know to be honest having looked at media treatment of facts in wartime and government treatment of facts in wartime, I think the media is much more uh, careless. And the worst stories seem to be, seem to me to be, have been given legs by the media rather than by governments. Recently, I've been looking back at the First World War, and there's a very interesting book uh, just come out by a British scholar called Stephen Badsey. And he has read extensively into this famous World War I story that the Germans had a factory that converted war dead, German war dead, into chemical components for explosives. So it was the, uh, the corpse conversion factory story. And this was supposed to be one of the worst atrocity stories that the British government put out in 
World War One, and what he's been able to show is that the story came f- clearly from the British regular press, probably based on a um, like a, a trench myth, and the government thought about exploiting the story and then decided not to. They uh, uh, wrote a pamphlet and then thought, no, we don't want to go here. So you know, I, I, I find that just fascinating. And it's a process that's borne out in uh, other conflicts too, with commercial media uh, printing tendentious material and governments, maybe uh, Western governments, uh, trying to put the lid on the, the, on extremes and that's not the story that's that's not the story that's told the story that's told in the media is oh you can't trust governments because they're the ones that perpetrate propaganda myths in wartime but maybe uh, what we're into here is you have to think of the vested interest of the of the voice and uh, you know the turkey's never going to vote for thanksgiving if you like the, the the media is never going to say well control or uh, Restraint in the media uh, is a is is a good idea. That maybe the media is is the problem here, not the government. It, it's easier to blame the government than to blame one's own institution. Well, all governments, good or bad, at some level have to attempt to be non-partisan because they're supposed to represent the entire population. The media can be as partisan as it likes, and its business requires that it should be partisan. And so their their version of events, their view of the world is always going to be tailored towards their own readership. And therefore, um, the strict adherence to the truth is often the first casualty. Mm-hmm. We know we know that the, the bad governments are often uh, partisan and are only targeting messages at their own followers, but it's less common. And they're not supposed to do that. And they know they're not supposed to do that. And it's only when you get state media like the BBC that we were talking about earlier, that is genuinely supposed to be nonpartisan to speak to the entire population, that love of the truth and balanced objective reporting becomes essential because you don't have a target audience. You're supposed to be talking to everybody. And it's a very, it's very, very tough life being that kind of media. That's why the BBC is a perennially unhappy organisation, because they have to compete against partisan media, um, but they're not allowed to be partisan themselves. And it's, it's, it, it's very tricky. But I, there's a lot of fascinating research in in the area of media studies, looking at the ways in which the media does or doesn't shape the images of countries. And I think it's, it, it's been known for, for, for many decades now that in the vast majority of cases, the media isn't primarily responsible for creating or altering the images of countries. What, what, what most of the media tends to do is to reflect public prejudice. It doesn't really create it. It's business is to reflect what people already believe. And what tends to happen is that if the media starts telling anomalous stories about a country, in other words, stories that run counter to the, to the general prejudice, people don't change their minds about the country. They change their media habits. They'll just stop buying that newspaper if it starts saying things about Mexico that they don't agree with. So, so people's perceptions of countries are very deeply rooted. They're part of the culture. And it's very, very difficult for, for the media to change that. And yet, and yet, if you're ever in the room when a government is discussing how they're going to improve their image, which is the thing that all governments discuss all the time, they immediately jump to the conclusion that this is a media problem and therefore requires an media solution. <laughs> yeah. 
Yes. Uh, so the bottom line is probably that it's a citizen problem and we get the government and the media that we deserve. So yes. as there's the line in Julius Caesar, fault, dear Brutus, lies not in the stars, but in ourselves. And perhaps here the fault is not in the media, but in our, ourselves and that we end up with the media that we, we deserve. Well, that's all we have time for this week. Thanks so much for listening. I'm still Nick Cole. I'm still Simon Anhold. <laughs>